Welcome to the Book of Mormon, a masterclass. This podcast is designed to help you come closer to Jesus Christ by seriously studying the Book of Mormon. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash the Book of Mormon. As we prepare to dive into 1 Nephi chapters 11 through 15 today, I want to start with a little analogy. Take a look at the image you see on the screen. Now, I've zoomed in a lot, so it might be hard to tell what it is. If I zoom back a little bit, is that helpful? And if I zoom back even more, then it becomes clear that it's a picture of my son Levi when he was a little boy. I think this is a good analogy for scripture study. Sometimes it's good to zoom in, to look for those one-liners, to find principles, to use the 1828 dictionary and scriptures.byu.edu. But sometimes it's also good to zoom back and see the big picture. Often I like to use the scripture technique of seeing Jesus Christ at the center to zoom back wherever I'm reading and to ask myself, how is the savior at the center of this passage? And we definitely see that in first Nephi chapters 11 through 15. Let's take a look at a big picture. In first Nephi chapter 11, Nephi sees a vision of what's happening in Jerusalem. He sees Jesus Christ ministering unto the people in power and great glory. He sees Jesus Christ lifted up upon the cross and slain for the sins of the world. Clearly, Jesus Christ is at the center of chapter 11. In chapter 12, the scene changes to the new world. Nephi sees his own descendants. He sees them having wars, rumors of wars, mists of darkness. But then he sees the Lamb of God descending out of heaven. He sees that his people will be purified because of their faith in the Lamb. Jesus Christ is at the center of chapter 12. In chapter 13, the scene changes again to the old world. Nephi sees a group of Gentiles coming to the new world, meeting the descendants of Lehi. Nephi says that the power of the Lord was with the Gentiles. He says the Gentiles are delivered by the power of God out of the hands of all other nations. Jesus Christ says, I will be merciful unto the Gentiles. And if they endure unto the end, they shall be lifted up at the last day. Nephi sees the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, the restoration of plain and precious truths of Jesus Christ. Clearly, the Savior is at the center of chapter 13. Chapter 14 brings us to the present day and beyond. Nephi speaks of the covenants of the Lord and the power of the Lamb of God that will descend on Christ's followers in the latter days. Clearly, Jesus Christ is at the center of chapter 14. Then in chapter 15, Nephi explains to his brothers that Christ would be manifested in body unto the children of men. And he speaks of the importance of coming to the knowledge of our Redeemer, who would fulfill his covenant with Abraham in the latter days. So when we step back holistically and see Jesus Christ at the center of 1 Nephi 11 through 15, it can give a message for us. Is Jesus Christ at the center of my life? Are there things I could be doing to make him more central? Some of these could be obvious with scripture study, prayer, temple, and church worship. But I could also ask myself about my movies, artwork, music. Do I watch movies about Jesus Christ? Is the artwork in my home centered on the Savior? Do I listen to uplifting Christ-centered music? There are so many ways that we can keep Jesus Christ at the center. Let's look at another big picture message from 1 Nephi chapters 11 through 14. 
On one occasion, Elder David A. Bednar encouraged teachers to read 1 Nephi chapters 11 through 14 with the lens of what it can teach us about elements in the learning process. As the angel talks to Nephi, we're essentially seeing a master teacher and a great student. What can we learn from their interactions? 1 Nephi 11 through 14 is the longest one-on-one conversation in the Book of Mormon, and there's lots we can learn about teaching and learning. For example, think about Nephi as a prepared learner. He said, after I had desired to know the things that my father had seen and believing that the Lord was able to make them known unto me, as I sat pondering in my heart, I was caught away in the spirit of the Lord. These are powerful keys for us in being good gospel learners. What do we desire? Do we ponder? Are we really putting heart and effort into preparing to learn? For many of us, we probably put this extra effort in for special occasions like general conference. But what about every Sunday? Or what about every day as I prepare to study my scriptures? I love that when the Spirit of the Lord comes to Nephi, the first question he asks is, what desirest thou? There have definitely been times when I've been teaching groups of teenagers, and if I were to say to them, what do you desire? They probably would have said, how about some donuts, Brother Hilton? And sometimes I, as the learner, that's been my desire. I've wanted something maybe a little less than a spiritual feast. But because Nephi desired a spiritual feast, that's what he got. It's interesting to notice that there are multiple times when the Spirit of the Lord, or later the angel, will tell Nephi to look. Over and over again, we see the phrase, look, and I looked. This tells us something about teaching, that are we pointing our students to things that they can do to be active in the learning process? And of course, Nephi is a diligent student who's looking. It's not just the phrase, look, and I looked. The phrase, behold, and I beheld also appears multiple times. And if we were to use our trusty friend, the 1828 dictionary to see what the word behold meant at the time of Joseph Smith, we see that it means to fix the eyes upon. So altogether, Nephi says, I looked or I beheld more than 20 times in these chapters. Clearly Nephi is an active learner and he has a teacher who's helping him find things in the scriptures. I know what you're probably thinking. Brother Hilton, I wish I could read a whole article on teaching and learning ideas from 1 Nephi 11 through 14. Wish granted. I actually wrote a 20-page article on this topic, and my mom told me it was amazing. She might be the only person who's actually read it, but just in case, I've posted it on the course website if you'd like to check it out. One of the things that Nephi sees in his vision is a young person, maybe about 14 years old, who would change the course of the world. Prophets, not just Nephi, but others, saw this person in vision centuries in advance. This person had a divine vision, and God chose this young person for a special mission. Now, it probably sounds like I'm talking about Joseph Smith, and this does describe him. But in his vision, Nephi actually sees Mary, the mother of Jesus. I think it's interesting because perhaps some faith traditions so heavily emphasize Mary that maybe we've swung to the other side and not emphasized her enough. Of course, it's good to celebrate the 14-year-old boy who helped kick off the restoration, but maybe we can spend a little more time thinking about a 14-year-old young woman who helped kick off the redemption by becoming the mother of the Son of God. Nephi says, I beheld the city of Nazareth, and in the city of Nazareth I beheld a virgin, and she was exceedingly fair and white. 
An angel came down and stood before me and said, Nephi, what beholdest thou? The angel explained to Nephi, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of the Son of God after the manner of the flesh. Nephi will go on to see the virgin again, bearing a child in her arms. The angel said unto him, Behold, the Lamb of God, even the Son of the Eternal Father. Did you know that in his vision, where Nephi is seeing centuries of events, he spends more time talking about Mary than any other individual? That says something about her important role. Nephi isn't the only person to emphasize Mary. King Benjamin and Alma will both prophesy of her. While we're talking about Mary, here's just a fun trivia question. Do you know in the Bible, what are the last words that we hear Mary say? They're actually in John chapter 2, verse 5, where Mary says, do whatever he tells you. I love this phrase. Jesus' father tells us, hear him. And his mother says, do whatever he tells you. Now, early in the teaching and learning process, Nephi is asked a question that he doesn't know the answer to. And I can't blame him because it's kind of a tricky question. The angel says to Nephi, knowest thou the condescension of God? What does that word condescension mean? If we were to look it up in the 1828 dictionary, we see that it means a voluntary descent from rank and dignity, a relinquishment of just rights and legitimate claims. So when we think about the phrase, do you know, knowest thou the condescension of God? I think we can read the word know perhaps in two different ways. Maybe it's no as in a factual, do you know two plus two equals four? But we can also read it as no, as in, do you know a person? Are you personally acquainted with the condescension of God? Or are you personally acquainted with Jesus Christ lowering himself for you? Once I was teaching a group of students and I asked them this question. Imagine I offered you a sum of money to lose all of the skills you've developed over the past 20 years. Basically, you would go back to being a baby. You'd have to relearn how to walk and talk all the skills you'd developed. Would you do it for a billion dollars? And a lot of my students would. But when I lowered it to 10 million, almost none of my students would lose their abilities. And that makes sense. We've worked hard to gain the abilities we've had. But think about it. The abilities that you and I have developed in our lives are so meager compared to those of Jesus Christ. The pre-mortal Jehovah was willing to give up everything he had developed. That's the condescension of God, lowering himself to be with us, to strengthen us, to atone for us. Now, just like there's opposition in all things, and opposition to Jesus Christ is the great and abominable church. In 1 Nephi chapter 13, Nephi sees a church that is most abominable above all other churches. Note that at this point in the vision, there seems to be multiple churches, and there's one that's particularly bad. Nephi tells us that this church has taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. In all this have they done that they might pervert the right ways of the Lord, that they might blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men. Now in chapter 13, there's a sequence that's really important, and it has to do with the coming forth of the writings of the apostles, or what we might see as the New Testament. So Nephi sees the Bible coming forth in purity from the Jews to the Gentiles. The angel tells him, 
after they, meaning the, these writings, the Bible, go forth by the hand of the 12 apostles of the Lamb from the Jews unto the Gentiles, thou seest the formation of that great and abominable church. They have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and most precious, and many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. Then in verse 29 we read, After these plain and precious things were taken away, it goes forth unto all the nations of the Gentiles. So notice the sequence. There's the Bible written in purity. The great and abominable church does some naughty things with it. And then it goes forth unto the Gentiles. Now, when I was growing up, sometimes I heard that the Catholic church was the great and abominable church. That is not the case. Note what Dr. Stephen Robinson said. If we use the term Catholic for the church Constantine made the state religion in AD 313, the New Testament, as we know it, was already widely circulating. That is, the plain and precious parts had already been removed. The Catholic Church of the 4th century was the result of the apostasy, not the cause. What exactly was the great and abominable church spoken of in chapter 13? Well, that's been lost to the sands of history. But notice how in chapter 14, Nephi uses the phrase great and abominable church a little bit differently. In chapter 13, there was lots of churches, but in chapter 14, there are only two churches, Nephi tells us, the church of the Lamb of God and the church of the devil. Again, when I was younger, I assumed that the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was the church of the Lamb of God and that all other churches must be the church of the devil. That definitely was not very charitable towards my wonderful Catholic, Lutheran, and evangelical friends. Later, I came to understand what President Dallin H. Oaks taught. He said this description suggests the contrast between those who believe in God and seek to serve him according to their best understanding and those who reject the existence of God. This great and abominable church must be something far more pervasive and widespread than a single church as we understand that term today. It must be any philosophy or organization that opposes belief in God and the captivity into which this church seeks to bring the saints will not be so much physical confinement as the captivity of false ideas. Nephi's vision is what we might call an apocalyptic vision, where there's symbolism being used. The church of the lamb and the church of the devil are meant to show us polar opposites. And it's like Nephi is asking us, which team will you be a part of? Now, I know what you're thinking to yourself. Brother Hilton, I wish I could read a whole book on Nephi's vision. Wish granted. There is such a book, and I've linked to a free version of it on our course website. But for now, let's continue forward with Nephi's vision of what will be happening in the latter days. This is an exciting part of his vision because he's describing our day. In 1 Nephi chapter 14, verse 12, Nephi says, I beheld that the church of the Lamb, the saints of God, were upon all the face of the earth and their dominions upon the face of the earth were small. Have you ever wondered why there are so few members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? I've had people say to me, well, if your church is the true church, why don't more people know about it? Well, we're trying to spread the word. But I also think it's interesting that Nephi saw in vision that the followers of the Lamb would be small in number. Nephi continues, I beheld that the great mother of abominations did gather together multitudes upon the face of all the earth among all the nations of the Gentiles to fight against the Lamb of God. 
And I beheld the power of the Lamb of God, that it descended upon the saints of the church of the Lamb and upon the covenant people of the Lord, who were scattered upon all the face of the earth. And they were armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. I beheld that the wrath of God was poured out upon that great and abominable church. Now, things in this vision are really starting to get exciting. God's power is with his people, but the enemies are really strong and it seems scary. And just then, Nephi's vision breaks off. The angel tells Nephi that the apostle John is going to write down the things that Nephi has seen and will continue to see, but that Nephi shouldn't write them down. It seems pretty clear that what Nephi is seeing in vision is John the Revelator and the book of Revelation. There's a lot of similarities between the book of Revelation and 1 Nephi chapters 11 through 14. For example, in both instances, an angel reveals information. There's a question-answer exchange between angels and prophets. Then there's the phrase, the lamb. The phrase, the lamb, appears almost exclusively in the book of Revelation in the Bible. And 80% of the time that the phrase, the lamb, appears in the Book of Mormon is in 1 Nephi chapters 11 through 15. There's the rod of iron, which is mentioned in Revelation and by Nephi, as well as the tree of life and a horse sitting upon many waters. Now, this isn't the time to do a deep dive into the book of Revelation. But if we were to summarize the book of Revelation in two words, it could be also a great summary of 1 Nephi chapters 11 through 14, which is simply Jesus wins. Nephi's vision breaks off just before some great last battles. Let's take a quick look at what John the Revelator wrote about these battles. He said, I saw heaven opened and a white horse. He that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness, he that judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire on his head were many crowns. He was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood. Notice that the Savior's clothing is covered with blood before the battle even begins. Perhaps this is symbolic of Jesus as a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He's already been fighting and conquering on our behalf. John continues, The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that he should smite the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. I think that's especially significant as we think about the centrality of the rod of iron in Lehi's vision. John says, I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse. The beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles. These were both cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Isn't it interesting that we see this buildup starting in Revelation chapter 16 of the battle of Armageddon. There's the dragon and the beast. It all seems so terrible. But once Jesus shows up, there's no battle at all. The beast is all talk, no walk. In other words, Jesus wins. I love this analogy. Imagine that you were watching a sporting event that you care deeply about. And your team was far behind with only one minute left on the clock. It looked like there was no hope. What if you knew from the very beginning that your team would win? The experience would be totally different. You wouldn't be stressed for that last minute of the game. You'd be confident. You'd be excited to see how things will work out. We can see the same thing in our lives. It's certain that we're going to face troubles and difficulties. But when we deep inside know that Jesus wins, 
it can bring great comfort. I love what a pastor named Judah Smith said, regardless of the state of the world or the polls of your favorite politician, Jesus is still in control. He wasn't voted in and he can't be voted out. He rules and reigns over the affairs of mankind. Because Jesus lives, I can live differently. I can act and react from a place of peace and an attitude of assurance. Jesus is in control of my past, my present, and my future. Despair over my past failures or fear over future problems cannot control my present because Jesus rules with me in peace. One overarching message of 1 Nephi 11 through 15 from the book of Revelation is that Jesus wins. Think about your life. How does deeply knowing that Jesus wins help us? We'll talk more about this in our next class, but one of the things that I've thought would be helpful with the Book of Mormon, a masterclass, is to hear the stories and experiences of participants in this course from around the world. Recently, I was talking with a member of our masterclass, Carrie Yost, who shared with me an experience of how knowing that Jesus wins helped her as she faced an extremely difficult time. In 2020, I became really sick with an autoimmune disease called ulcerative colitis, and it stole everything. It felt like um, I wasn't able to do anything because I was sick. And so I had to give up all of the things that had had somewhat made me me. And when you lose all of it, you find out who you are and what your self-esteem and everything else is based on. And I had to quickly ground myself in my knowledge of the Savior and in his atonement and his ability to heal us even when we're not healed. And um, I knew pretty quickly that he had a plan for all of it, that he knew exactly what I was feeling, exactly what I would choose um, to bring out of this. And because of it, I have been able to share with the world my belief in Jesus Christ, my my knowledge that he's there, that he's my savior and that his atonement has has saved me. And I'm so grateful for the difficult times because they help us understand him and what he did for us. I personally have been blessed by Carrie's music. And if you'd like to take a listen to it, I've linked to it on the course website. Nephi's vision ends in chapter 14, and that takes us to 1 Nephi chapter 15. In today's class and our previous class, we've already touched on a lot of details from this chapter, but I want to highlight just a couple of lessons. First, Nephi tells us, I was grieved and overcome because of mine afflictions, for I considered mine afflictions were great above all because of the destruction of my people, for I had beheld their fall. As readers, we already know what's going to happen to the Nephites, but think about how traumatic this must have been for Nephi. And I love what happens next. He says, after I had received strength, I spake unto my brethren. This verse doesn't tell us how much time Nephi took between feeling down and discouraged and going to speak to his brothers. I wonder if it was hours or days or weeks, but I love that no matter how much time it was, Nephi took some time out to receive strength. There are going to be times when we need to do this as well. After Nephi received strength, he talked to his brothers who had some questions for him about the things that their father had taught. When Laman and Lemuel were confused, when they said, we don't understand, I love Nephi's response in 1 Nephi chapter 15, verse 8, have ye inquired of the Lord? 
This is a great question for us in our own personal lives. As we face difficult, complex questions, are we inquiring of the Lord? This is also a really important question for us as parents, leaders, and teachers. People are going to come to us with difficult challenges and personal questions, and it can be tempting to draw just on our own storehouse of wisdom and knowledge. But ultimately, what matters most is helping people connect with God. Maybe sometimes if people ask us a challenging question, we can respond with, have ye inquired of the Lord? I remember I had a conversation with someone once, and that was the advice I gave this institute student. Well, I could tell that he took it to heart because sometime later, when I asked all of my institute students if they could share with me some advice for how I could improve in my gospel teaching, this student wrote down, Brother Hilton, have you inquired of the Lord? We're going to have lots of challenges and difficulties in our lives. I hope that in today's class, we've seen the big picture that Jesus Christ is at the center. He wins. And because of that, we can have peace. Yes, we're still going to have difficulties and trials, but when we do, we can inquire of the Lord. He'll answer our prayers and give us the guidance that we need. Thank you for listening today. We hope you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It really helps others discover it. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash the Book of Mormon. We hope to see you there.